You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So, we have been talking about this prayer. And last week, we talked about the hour part of the prayer. Uh, a lot. I mean, we talked about our Father in heaven, your name be honored and holy, which is about the Father's character. Everybody say character. So we talked about the Father's character. And then we talked about your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, if you'll go back to that prayer. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, we talk about then, at that point, you know, the Father's desire to, to love us, to lead us into God's kingdom. Or if you want to look at where all this is, you can see on, on, in the actual uh, guide where we talk about uh, the Father's kingdom. And then if you remember, we say to give this today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. We talked about how bread is, is not uh, just literal bread. It's, it's sustenance. Now, in the minds of the hearers, they're probably going to think back of the wilderness time where they are provided with the manna. Uh, and that's how God provided for them at all times, even in the wilderness. And then today what I want to do is talk about the last half of the verse. But I want to remind us of just a couple of things that, that, is, that can be important. Remember the early church. How often did they gather, as far as we can tell, in the early church? Yeah, every day and many times in some regions twice a day, remember? So they'd gather in the morning, and they would pray and they would sing. And then they would gather in the evening, and they'd pray and sing and then eat. But there's something else they did that I want to remind us of, and I want us to think through as we move through this Our Father prayer and as we close out this part of the conversation as we swing more deeply into our series. For one thing, remember that they prayed during the hours of the prayers. So they took on, the Christians took on a synagogue approach to prayer. They prayed at 9, most likely, at noon and at 3. At 9 and noon at 3. It's called the sacred hours of sacred pauses is what it became known as. But praying at 9 and noon and 3 is important because they would gather together in the morning and pray and then they'd go about their work, they'd go about their life. But 9 o'clock would hit. And let's say Casey's out there and she's doing her job and she's over here. But then way, way, way back over there, like way, like miles maybe even, Brian's doing his job and it's 9 o'clock. And they know that as Christians they pray the Our Father at 9 o'clock. So then Casey prays Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name, at 9. And at the same time, Brian prays. And every other Christian at 9 a.m. in that region prays. And then 12 p.m. comes, and they stop what they're doing, and they pray. And at 3 p.m. comes, and they stop what they're doing, and they pray. What are they doing? They're praying together. Even though they're not together, they are together. And think about this rhythm. Think about the habit. Think about the way it would form them. Think about how less quickly they'd fly off the handle at a Christian. Come on now. Think about how much they would think about how the fact that they are in a life of faith where they're not alone. They pray the Our Father, not the My Father. And they're praying the Our Father because even as a collective group of Christians, not even in the same room, they're praying the same prayer together. And then when they came together, they, would, they were together. They were together in spirit. They were together physically. They were together in prayer. And every day, think about how that would change us if every day, if we decided as a church that we were going to commit to a season of 9, 12, and 3 p.m. prayers. 
And every day at 9, 12, and 3 p.m., we would pray the Our Father. And think about the fact that when you did it, you would know that your brothers and sisters are praying for you. And who knows what the Holy Spirit would do? Who knows if we really believe in a God who does what we say God does? Who knows what the Holy Spirit would do if the Holy Spirit would, would poke, you know, Heidi's heart for me as she and I are praying in the Spirit, because that's the biblical understanding, praying in the Spirit, even though we're not in the same room. And then all of a sudden, prayers are lifted for me at a moment in time where I have needs and I don't even realize I have needs. Or maybe I do have needs. This is how it tethered the church together. This is why they had a sense of solidarity with one another and they needed it because when they decided to follow Jesus they lost things y'all realize that like when Jews decided to follow the Jewish Messiah when they decided to claim that he really is the king of Israel they were idiots to follow the God who died I mean, the tomb was empty. Nobody really knows. Did the disciples take the body? Did Rome have a trick to play? I mean, it was undeniable the body was risen, and word on the street was that he'd revealed himself to people. But it was foolish. They left the faith. But not just that, more so. The Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, when they decided to follow Jesus, they were ostracized from the power of society. Do you realize that? Like, if you're a businessman or a businesswoman, and you were Roman, and you decided to no longer worship the deities because you now worship Jesus, guess what you can't do? You can't do, you can't be a part of the Chamber of Commerce in Rome. You know why? Because to be a part of the Chamber of Commerce, you had to make sacrifices and offerings to the gods before you walked in to do business. Are you with me? But you can't make sacrifices to the gods because you don't believe in those gods, so guess what you can't do? business and then when everybody found out that you had offered your life to this fake messiah and you were no longer a, a worshiper of the gods you were a risk to rome because the gods are going to be angry because of you if the gods get angry and not only that we're not going to do business with you because you're a weird atheist so when the Christians are praying at 9, 12, and 3 o'clock, they're remembering that they need each other. They're remembering that they have the same Father. They remember that they're a part of something, even though their confession that Jesus is Lord has excluded them from the power centers of society. So they didn't just pray because they could. They prayed because they had to and then they wanted to. And this prayer changes things. Because they would pray, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your character is completely other. Help me hold that up in a moment where I am told that I don't belong. May your kingdom come. Like, God, I, like I need to remember that Rome isn't the king. You hear me? The early church needed to remember that Caesar wasn't king. He might be king of Rome. But he wasn't king of the universe. Remember, Caesar called himself the son of God. And so when the early church prayed, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they were remembering. Caesar has a lot of power. It's undeniable. And he's got a lot of influence. Undeniable. He's on our money. Undeniable. But he's not the king of kings. You with me? They needed this prayer. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you show your power to us? Give us today our daily bread. You know what this prayer doesn't say? It doesn't have a caveat or a hedge and says, oh, and also tomorrow. You know why? What did Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33? Anybody remember the section of text? One of the things you'll realize is Lord's Prayer is surrounded by a lot of Jesus' own commentary of the Lord's Prayer. 
Remember he talks about the flowers of the field and the birds of the air? Remember in verse 33 he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice and all the things you need will be added unto you. And then he says this, And do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to have its own problems. You know why they prayed, Give us today our daily bread? Because I think Jesus wanted them to not have an anxious presence worried about tomorrow's bread when today is where they lived. So when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we're not even thinking about tomorrow because guess what we're going to pray tomorrow? Give us today our daily bread. And what are we going to pray next Friday? Give us today our daily bread. So I have to worry about next Friday. I have to worry about tomorrow. I just need to worry about today. And I don't even need to worry about today because what have I already prayed before I even got to give us today your daily bread? Father in heaven, divine parent, one who knows me best and loves me most and has made me a part of a we. Come on now, right? Give us today our daily bread. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread because I know B.I. gave his life to you, Lord, and he's not welcomed in the role in the Greek chamber of commerce. Provide for him, Lord. Provide for him, Lord. B.I.'s trying to do his business, provide for him, Lord. That's how the prayer takes shape. And you know how they did it? 9, 12, and 3. It was a part of their life. And then, of course, they would get to the hard parts that we'd rather Jesus have omitted. Especially the forgive us our debts. As we have also forgiven our debtors. Now I want to say a couple of caveats. And I, Garrett alluded to it. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. I want to be really clear. Forgiveness is forgiving someone. That's a choice. Everybody say a choice. It is a choice. And you can forgive someone who has caused harm to you, but you do not have to put yourself back in that relationship where harm can happen. You with me? That's not forgiveness. That's something else. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I've got a bit back in relationship with somebody. That's what the Bible calls reconciliation. But here's the truth of it all. Forgiveness is a decision a person makes. Reconciliation is a decision both people or both groups have to make. Does that make sense? You can't make somebody reconcile with you, but you can choose to forgive them. Because to withhold that forgiveness becomes a problem in our soul. And I want to illustrate that in a minute. Because we're called to walk in love. And if we walk in love, guess what love will do for us? It'll liberate us. Everybody say liberate. It'll liberate us. Whatever you walk in, you will get on you. If you walk in love, you will get love. The Holy Spirit of love will produce love. But if you walk in harm, you will get harm. If you walk in unforgiveness, you will be drinking the poison of a vial that you are giving yourself. And that is why Jesus is trying to liberate us from this in this prayer. He is trying to say to us, and he does not, he doesn't even try to say to us, he says very discomforting things to us about forgiveness. And there's reasons for that. Because the forgiveness, a refusal, everybody say refusal. Come on, say it again, refusal. Not struggle, say not struggle, but refusal. It's about refusal. Refusal's the problem. Struggle is the way. Refusal's the problem. That's where we bring harm into our own lives. When we harbor unforgiveness and refuse to move in forgiveness. 
But many of us don't forgive because we are taught or have been taught that that means I've got to be all right with that person. That is not the case. I can forgive you for wronging me. I am not saying what you did was right to me. You will have the consequences of your actions, but I can forgive you because what forgiveness is is a choice to let go of my right to have revenge. It is a choice to let go of my right for retribution. I can learn not to want to have anything harmful happen to you, and I can learn not to have an opinion about you other than loving you in Christian love, whatever that can look like. And God help me with it all. Does that make sense? When we forgive, we are not saying that what was done to us is okay. We are not saying that what was done to us is right. We are not saying that what was done to us shouldn't have been done. Harms are harms and wrongs are wrongs. We don't have to reconcile with that, harmful, with that harmful person. We don't like to talk about this in Christianity very much, but the Bible is really, really clear, especially about having boundaries with Christians who, in the name of Jesus, act very anti-Jesus. The Bible has something very, very blunt to say about that. Now, it should, be an, it, should, it should not be the rule for obvious reasons. We shouldn't have that kind of life together, right? It should be more nurturing than that together, but it is something we move through. Does that make sense? This is the hard part of what Jesus taught. So what Jesus does is he often illustrates these things in stories. So if you have your Bibles, and I'm sorry it's not in the app because I was um, in Georgia for a funeral to be with a dear friend who lost his mama, and I got in at like 1.30 this morning, and so I just did not, over the course of the last few days, have time to, to update the app, so I apologize. Um, but thankfully you all have Bibles. Um, so Matthew chapter 18, I want to I illustrate this for you. Now, Jesus says a lot about this, um, but I, wanna, I, wanna, I think this story covers it really, really well. Um, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? And I really wish Jesus would have just been like, sure. Like, yes, next question, Peter. Like, that would have been so much easier. And Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, real quick, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's saying, hey, picture this. He's saying, hey, imagine this. So anytime you hear Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus is saying, hey, 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 picture a world where. You with me? That's what he's saying. Imagine a world where. Because the problem with Christianity a lot of times is we have a diseased imagination. It's a very small imagination. We can't imagine a world where. And Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples, hey, imagine a world where. And he's not even just saying, hey, pretend in some fantasy. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. So if you want to know what a world would look like where the king is the king, where your kingdom come and your will is actually done on earth as it is in heaven, are you seeing that? Then I need you to imagine a world like. Are you with me, y'all? Come on, y'all sleepy this morning. Y'all with me? Tanya, Robin, come on, y'all. Y'all help me out. All right, so that's it. So, so yeah, Mama Verna was in first service. Christoph first. Like, I need some. Y'all, y'all all got to come on. So, like, the kingdom comes, right? So if you want to know what this prayer looks like, anytime you go to the Bible and Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, that's what we're living into. 
All right, and that's the hard part of the that's the hard part of the text. The kingdom. <laughs> not, now you just being now you just being salty. All right, the kingdom of <laughs> the kingdom. All right, so here's what he says: so the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, they brought to him a servant who owed him ten thousand bags of gold. Anybody know how much 10,000 bags of gold would be? Okay, Jason Blanchard, who y'all know has talked about money, he's a professional money guy, he gave the most profound answer in first service very loudly. A lot. It was completely unhelpful. 10,000 bags of gold. You know what 10,000 bags of gold equates to in their day? When they hear 10,000 bags of gold and they do the math, it's 60 million working days of wages. 60 million days of wages. So when they hear Jesus say, this servant owned this master, 10,000 bags of gold, they hear 60 million days of wages. Is that servant going to be able to pay 60 million days of wages back? The answer is absolute. Not unless he's Methuselah, right? Like maybe, for those who know your Bible history. Uh, which, that is just bizarre. Like, 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 like Yoda of the Bible. Like that's just... 900 years old. So like, but he's not. He's not going to be able to pay that back. That's the story Jesus is telling. He's setting up an impossibility. And he's doing it in a way that's concrete. Everybody say concrete. concrete. He's doing it in concrete. When, he, when they hear 10,000 bucks, they hear 60 million days of wages. They know that this is an impossibility. So this story is about to hit a whole different level of absurdity, which many of Jesus' parables were in order to get us to picture a world where. Because I guess Jesus knows that we're too smart and we mistake our intelligence, we mistake cynicism for intelligence. Well, yeah, it's not possible. It's not the world we live in, Fred. It's not the world we live in. I know it's not, which is why Jesus says, hey, picture a world like, and then when we pray, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Read it with me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then maybe the world becomes like that. Are you with me? Maybe then it becomes possible. And I need it to for my life, and you do too. So Jesus gives us a prayer to help us get there. So anyway, so he says, 10,000 bags of gold. Verse 25, because the servant didn't have enough to pay it back, of course, the master ordered that he should be sold along with his wife and children and everything he had and that the proceeds be used as payment. Well, come on, Jesus, at least soften the story. But what's Jesus doing? Is this how the world works? Yes, this is how the world would work. So Jesus is letting us to know, like he's meeting us in our concrete world where things happen. All right. But the servant fell down, verse 26, kneeled before him and said, please be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Now listen to this. The master had compassion. Everybody say compassion. Compassion on that servant. Released him. Everybody say released. You know, another word for that is liberated. Liberated him. Not let go, not saved, not freed, liberated. That's the strength of the word. Liberated him and forgave the loan. Forgive us our what? Debts. They're going to understand debt better than they're going to understand sins and trespasses. Other account says sins, trespasses, 
gets translated that way. It's not wrong, but debt is a concrete word. Debt is a word I can get my mind around. It is, more relatable. Yeah, it's good. No, it's good. Verse 28, when that servant went out, he was grateful for all that the master had done and did the same for all others. Is that how it reads? No. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. Now, how many days wage is 100 coins? Just guess. A uh, hundred. So is 100 days wages easier than 60 million days wages? So he owed him 100 days wages. And he said, give me my money. He grabbed him around the throat. Notice that it doesn't say that about the master. Notice that the master, the original master, does not grab the servant around the throat. God will not grab you around the throat, beloved. God is not that way. We are. There's a contrast in this story. God does not deal violently with you. God gets attributed a lot of things God isn't doing. Because of our understandings of how power works. Which we'll talk about in this prayer in a moment. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. He grabbed him around the throat and said, pay me back what you owe. And then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Everybody say refused. And that's the issue. Instead, he threw him into prison until he paid back his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply offended, and they came and told their master all that had happened. His master called the first servant and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy? Everybody say mercy. We are a merciless society. Everybody say mercy again. Mercy. mercy. Have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. His master was furious and handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners until he paid back the whole debt. And then here's where I wish Jesus would have just stopped. I wish Jesus would have said, okay, any questions? But no, Jesus has something else left to say that is the most disorienting part of the whole story that we all know is coming, but we don't want to hear. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And that's the part we don't want. I don't want that. But then we have to ask the reason why does it work that way. God isn't petty. That's the point. God isn't petty. God isn't holding your sins against you like we hold our sins against ourselves and sometimes like we hold our sins against others. God isn't the petty one in this story. We are. We're the petty ones. And when we feel this way, we can do exactly what this young man did and grab people by the throat. We can then commit to violent acts. We can commit to acts of retribution and punishment. What we call retributive justice or punitive justice rather than restorative justice a justice that leans into mercy and grace before it leans into just deserts because what's the reality of the story but the reality of the story is i owe god 60 million days of wages and there is no way on god's green earth literally i can pay that back and god knows it and you know what god does liberates us from it not just forgives us but also liberates us from it too 
But you know what God simply asks? Is that with what mercy has been measured to us, we learn how to measure that mercy to others. With what has been given to me, I learn to give it to others. With what forgiveness I've received, I learn. Everybody say learn. Now here's what I want you to hear, please. Your struggle to forgive is not a lack of forgiveness. You know what we call that? A struggle to forgive. Y'all with me on that? Your wrestling with whether or not you can forgive is still called a struggle to what? Forgive. You know what a struggle to forgive shows? That you're choosing forgiveness. But you know what the reality of nervous systems and brains and bodies and harm that we experience in our life is? We carry these harms in our bodies literally. We carry this weight. Your struggle to forgive is still a choice to forgive. That is not what Jesus is coming against. What Jesus is coming against is a refusal to forgive. And Jesus knows that refusing to forgive ultimately kills us with the death of a thousand cuts. Because that person with which we are harboring unforgiveness toward is living their life. And God forbid, in the worst of ways, maybe even harming other people along the way. And we then find ourselves holding on. And it does something in our bodies. It does something in our brains. It literally does something in our lives, in our souls. When we hold that in. And so this prayer is a daily 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 p.m. reminder. Do you see how it's playing out? If you're a Christ follower and you've been harmed by Caesar, you've been harmed by the system, you've been harmed by empire, you've been harmed by family who's, who's abandoned you because you gave your life to Jesus, you're harmed by these people in your life, you're harmed by customers who won't buy from you because you confess Jesus as Lord, you're literally praying three times a day, oh, Father in heaven, your name be honored and holy, your kingdom come, your will be done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in our lives, Lord, in my life as it is in heaven. Forgive me, forgive us, forgive us of our debts you already have as we've forgiven those. And God, you know I'm struggling to do that. It's a prayer that's being prayed every time that is reminding them of the call on their life. That they are a people who have received much, who have received grace, who live under grace, and who by the power of the Spirit can give grace because we will get on us what we are walking in. And if we are walking in love, we will be liberated by love, and love will get on us, and we will love others more faithfully. But if we walk in harming others, and if we walk in holding grudges with others, we will get grudges in our hearts. Does that make sense? I have found in 20 plus years of pastoral ministry that when the refusal to forgive is there, I have seen us become bitter people because of that. I have been my most bitter self when I have refused to forgive. I've been my most pessimistic and negative self when I have refused to forgive. When I've refused to not want harm come to them because of what they did for me. And yet, when I remember the God of the cross, when I remember the grace that is given, when I remember that I owe God 60 million days of wages, and I just cannot pay back, 
And God has not just forgiven the debt, but released me from it. Where I don't even have to worry about it anymore. Well, I don't even have to talk about it anymore. It's not on my record. Are you with me? Come on now, are you with me? It's not on your record. You can't go to God and go, God, remember those days of wages? God said, I chose to forget that. Why are you still bringing it up? The Bible says, I'll remember your sins no more. That can do something in me. That can do something in me. May not result in me just forgiving him immediately, but it can do something in me. So this prayer is a choice. In a faith filled with choices, where love is ultimately a choice, where God made God's choice with a bloodstained cross and empty tomb that said it so. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of redemption. But what that means is neither is the person that harmed me to. And that is hard. What did y'all just hear me say? That is hard. Say, that is hard. I will never, ever intentionally, ever intentionally want, never do I intentionally want to misappropriate or um, demean or minimize harms that some of us have walked through. This is hard. And it is okay for it to be hard. And the God who knows you best and loves you most knows how hard it is. All this prayer is asking you to do is live into the hard. Just, just press in one more moment into the hard. Are you with me, everybody? If you have any questions about this, any struggles with this, please see me. Do not leave this gathering carrying some kind of shame and some kind of guilt and some kind of weight because of what you hear Jesus saying. Does that make sense? Don't do that, please. Jesus is wanting to liberate us from it, and Jesus knows this is the struggle. The issue is refusal, not struggle. Which is why we have this prayer as a model prayer. Give us what? Today. So it's about today. So lean into today with this. Don't lean into tomorrow with this. Lean into today with this prayer. Lean into today with this call to forgiveness. And so Jesus goes on and says, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, because the reality is we know that's going to be around us all the time, the temptation to not forgive, the temptation to not give, live into today, the temptation to grab and to grip, the grasp and to grip, the temptation to, to leverage money and material wealth and power for, for harmful things and for my own gain. All these temptations are there, and we know this, and it says deliver us. Everybody use the word deliver. So when you pray this prayer, I'm asking you, please don't get stuck on and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Pray through the rest. And God, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Lord, you're going to have to deliver me from this unforgiveness. You're going to have to deliver me from this ongoing hurt. I need you to deliver us. Deliver us. Deliver me. Does that make sense? Because I hear Christians say this, and then I'm going to be done. I hear Christians say this all the time when it comes to these things. We all like to say, we all like to say, well, God is in control. So therefore, God is in control. Therefore, the Lord is in control. Therefore, 
there are struggles with that word control because of how we understand how control works in the world. What we're trying to say is that God has power to do all things. I think that's what we're trying to say. But when we say the word control, that conjures up images of I'm harmed because God made it happen. Or I'm harmed because God orchestrated this. Or I'm in this temptation because God is testing me. As if God is a divine proctor waiting to test his people. And we sometimes then equate God's power as control, which then means everything that happens has been orchestrated by God. There's problems with that biblically, though I can understand why we get there biblically. I do. So I'm not going to minimize that. I'm going to remind you of a handful of things, and it's in your, it's in your booklets. Who does Jesus call the ruler of this age in John's gospel? Three times, maybe four. Anybody want to guess? Yeah, the devil, the enemy, the evil one, Satan, whatever name you want to give him. What does Jesus call him again? The rule, what? Ruler of this age? Yeah, in 1 John chapter 5, and it's, all of it's in here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Listen to what John said. The whole world, everybody say whole world. So how much of the world? The whole world. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. You know what the word sway means? Influence. You know what the word influence has a connotation of? Political power. When we say that God is in control, we also need to back that up and say, and there's the reign of sin and death at work in the world, and the devil's in control of that. Now, will God overcome it? Come on now, that, this is a real easy one. The answer is yes. Now, has God overcome it? Come on, help me out. I'm starting to question my pastor, like, we're going to have an elders meeting. Like, yeah, yeah, God has overcome it. Are you an overcomer? Yes, even though you may not feel like it, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? You are God's treasured what? Begins with a P? We say it? Possession. So who possesses you? God. Does the devil possess you? No, God possesses you. Are you the devils? No, you are God. So for the child of God, God is your king. God is in charge of your life. You've pledged allegiance to God, and in that way, you can say, God is my king, and God will sort this out. But do not mistake that the devil has not got some charge in this world. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. The reign of sin and death is a thing because the devil too sits on a throne. It is just a, strong, it's just a throne made of wooden chips. And it's going to burn. You've overcome. But let's be very careful when we say things like, God is in control. When something, when something happens tragic in my life, do me a favor. Don't tell me God is in control. Can we just agree? I'm asking that of you as a pastor. Don't tell me God is in control. Remind me that I'm God's possession. Remind me that Christ is as close to me as what? The breath in my lungs. Remind me even if you want to give me something to make you feel better about my situation, because let's be honest, that's what this is about sometimes. Then tell, remind me of Romans 8.28 where it says, In all things God can work together. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Remind me of that. That doesn't say God is in control. That says God gets in it of, his li of the lives of his children and can redeem something out of this. You with me on that? God raises the dead to life. Remind me of that. 
Remind me of a bloodstained cross and empty tomb. Remind me of that. But please, please don't tell me that God is in control because the devil was in control of that and it's got death written all over it. And that is not of God. You hear me? That is not of God. That is what Paul called the reign of sin and death. It is the darkness of this world that is being scattered by the light. And that is different. And then, if I'm struggling with all those outcomes, and God forbid it has to do with another human being, I need you to pray this prayer with me. Our Father in heaven, let your name be honored as holy. May your kingdom come into this. God, let your reign break into Fred's life in a way that he sees it. And may what you want that is happening in heaven break into his life now on earth. And God, give him today, just a day. Tomorrow will come. Give him the day what he needs. Give him the day what he needs. And God, forgive us when we forget that. And help him forgive those who cause the harm. And don't let him be brought into temptation. But liberate him from the evil one. Because yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And in the words of a great actor, forever, forever, forever. forever. From a film that I do not recommend in church. I want to be clear. Do not Google it. Do not Google it. Resist the temptation of Googling the film. But it always comes to mind. Anytime I pray the Lord's Prayer, I hear that. Beloved, God is yours and you are God's. That can't be taken away. What the world didn't give, finish it. The world can't take away. The joy that God has given you cannot be taken away. The forgiveness that God has given you cannot be taken away. The mercy that God has given you cannot be taken away. The power that God has given you cannot be taken away. You are loved just as you are, not as you should be, because in the end, in the words of Brennan Manning, none of us are who we actually should be. And only the love of God can liberate us into who we can be, and we need the Our Father for that. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 